I'm Dr. Susan Eyrick, and welcome to Earthfire Radio. Earthfire Institute is a wildlife sanctuary and rehabilitation center whose mission is to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature. Andrew Harvey is an internationally acclaimed poet, novelist, translator, mystical scholar, and spiritual teacher. He has written and edited more than 30 books, including the best-selling titles The Hope and the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. He has won the Christmas Humphreys Prize for A Journey in Ladakh, the Nautilus Prize twice for The Hope and Light the Flame, and appeared in two recent films, Dancing in the Flames, and Ethan Hawke's Seymour, an introduction. He has taught at Oxford University, Cornell University, Hobart and William Smith Colleges, the California Institute of Integral Studies, and the University of Creation Spirituality, as well as at various spiritual centers throughout the United States. He is the founder and director of the Institute of Sacred Activism. It's an honor, and welcome, Andrew. You're looking so great, Susan. Is it a lovely time in Idaho? It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Stunning, huh? Everything is lush and green and vibrant and growing, and the birds are going nuts in the background, and the, it's cool nights and warm days and plenty of water, and the snows are still on the mountains, and it's beautiful. Oh, my God. Oh, oh. Well, Idaho is stunning, isn't it? Actually, Oak Park is extraordinarily beautiful, too. The light, the, the light is like white wine, and it's so tender. And people actually look happy, which is quite an achievement in Chicago. Yes. Uh -huh. yes. Um, okay. I'd love to start. Uh, we can start whenever you want. You want to ask me a question? or? I would. I'd love to, you know... Carolyn and I are writing this book on animals called Dividing Animal, and we have a whole section on what we believe animals can teach us, because we believe, and I know that this is part of what you believe, that animals are guides to a possible future. They're not just our companions, extraordinary, beautiful creatures in their own right. They have extraordinary wisdom that we need to attune ourselves to, to go to the next stage of our own evolution, because we're not going to get there just as human beings, we're going to get there in concert with the whole animal world and because of a wholly new illumined relationship with the animal world. That's what I deeply believe. I wrote this, and Karen and I wrote this, we sent it to a group of analysts, all of whom roared with laughter and said, you're just projecting all this wisdom and passion and depth onto animals because you're afraid of seeing that in the animal world there's a great deal of violence, not just violence that we can know, but also sadism, real cruelty, and that this is part of the animal in us and explains part of our own ambiguity about the animal in us. How do you, I was very disturbed by their reaction because it showed me, it showed, I felt, it showed me that they'd never ever had a revelatory relationship with an animal. 
and that they're using all the techniques of psychology to prevent this kind of realization, the kind of realization that you and I are trying to have in our own lives and to share with others. But I've been thinking deeply about it, and I've also come to understand that, yes, they, we cannot sentimentalize our relationship. We have to get it right. We have to get it tuned right. So what does that tuning right of our relationship to animals look like to you? What are the dangers of projection? What are the, how can, are we in danger of sentimentalizing animals and of projecting our own visions onto them? We are terribly in danger of doing that everywhere, <laughs> not just to animals. That's what we human beings do. We project onto others and developing some level of accuracy and sanity try to see things as accurately as we can without projecting our own needs on them. Our own needs are so great, we get screwed over, we screw over others and screw ourselves over all the time. As my own feeling is our brains are still somewhat unbalanced, having grown so quickly. Yes. Um, and we're, we're unstable. We're, yes. Tom did a wonderful book, because of the anatomy of human destructiveness, I think it was in that book, he's written, he wrote many good books. He said, we're no longer purely animal and we're no, not yet human. Who is this from? Eric Fromm, he was a psychoanalyst actually. Oh God, yes, I know him. I love the anatomy of human destructiveness. My God, I love his work. I didn't know he wrote a book on that, my goodness. Um, wow. Very interesting book, but that was always struck me and that we're between. Yeah, exactly, between the angel and the, and the animal. Yeah, we're evolving, and so we're unbalanced. We've got this incredible brain, enormously complex, sitting on top of, of the same brain parts that we have with animals, the limbic system and where all the emotions are, and the connection just still a bit screwed up, I think. We just haven't found our way. And so we're so full of needs and so full of fears that we do project a lot on everything not just animals. I hear you, that's true. And that's of course underlies Buddhist psychology, mystical psychology, that projection is the cause of all the suffering on the planet, projection of desire and of greed and of insecurity, etc. yes. Um, but I am a psychologist and I think both are true. I think we project terribly on animals and I think the animals have an incredible amount to teach us. How we find our own sanity is a great big deal. I mean, that's what we're all working on as, as we make this shift in consciousness. The shift in consciousness has to be grounded. And the animals, among other, many other things they do, is they help ground us. So we're not off in Never Neverland. No. <laughs> no, they're not. But um, Animals are not New Ages, are they? They're not, they don't believe that we're going to be saved by alien spaceships. That, thank God. No. Let me, let me try and think this, Andrew, because it's not easy to ex explain, really. Um, you asked about projecting onto animals. Um, because we have a wildlife sanctuary here and people come to look at them, I have to admit to getting really tired of the projections onto the animals. And my whole job is to try to get people to see them. Oh, they love me. No, they don't. They don't know you yet. They don't love someone suddenly any more than we do. It takes time to love them. Uh, oh, they're asking me this. Oh, they're asking me that. How do you know this? And the, all the dangers of people who do animal communication and put their own stuff on it. Now, I certainly, I believe there is animal communication. I just oh, yes. I've had to not lay, to project and lay your own trips on it. And to the extent that people do lay their own trips on it, they put the, get the whole field of negative um, 
and make it uh, heal. But um, so what is the true nature of animals? In my opinion, they're close to identical to us with all the same capacities. For horrible things and wonderful things. For no, a thing. when, you finally, when you hear about it, like you asked me last time about the, the supposed viciousness with which some animals fell upon another animal and ate them. And I said, that's not viciousness, that's passion. Uh, they're, they're hungry. No, I was asking you because I, I, I agree with you, but I, I'm constantly trying to play the devil's advocate to get my own vision clearer so as I can be more of an advocate, more helpful. So I think that they are just like us, only I don't see, I don't see sadism or cruelty, even if they go uh, and like a ferret will kill all the chickens. I think it's more like a frenzy, which is yes. different from cruelty or sadism. I have not seen that in animals ever myself at all. But all the other qualities of fear, love, gentleness, aggression, um, jealousy, manipulation, all of it is there. Because the sadism in the, it seems there's sadism in the insect world, the praying mantises that leave their prey half devoured and then pick them up just when they want it. I mean, there is... I don't think it's sadistic. I think they just do it. I hear you. You think that there's something unique about human consciousness that gives us access not only to divine transcendence, but also to these horrific depths of sadism and conscious cruelty. I'm no expert on this. I've not seen it in animals. Somebody who's an expert in apes who are close to us may have seen it and, and interpreted it that way. I have not in any of the animals I've ever dealt with. Um, aggression, yes. Um, manipulation, yes. Killing, yes. Um, very enthusiastic eating, yes. Um, not noticing the suffering of the prey, yes. But that's different to say, it is it? That's what I really believe. I believe what you're saying because I've never seen it. And I've spent a lot of time in these last 10 years with animals, really looking and opening my whole heart and saying, please teach me, please help me see how you are, what you do. And I've never, ever seen any act of conscious sadistic cruelty, which I think is one of the most appalling aspects of human, obviously one of the most. Not conscious, no. And I mean, if you see a cat playing with a mouse, that's not sadism. It's... Uh... It's a hunting kind of pattern. It's, it's a kind of dark play, ferocious play. What is it? They're not thinking of the suffering of the other animal. They're not getting pleasure from the suffering of the other animal, in my opinion. I hear you. I, they, they are they're in their dimension of play. Yes. Why are causing that? suffering, but they're not getting off on the suffering. Right. They're not getting a kind of inner orgasm of power from that suffering. It doesn't right. seem like that. Right. So anyway, you asked me about the nature of animals and I say basically um, all the animals here, all of them, show a sense of humor. <laughs> I'm a bad fox to a bear. <laughs> if you have a sense of humor yourself, you really appreciate their sense of humor. Oh God, yes. My cat is terribly funny. I mean, the different sounds and the looks these dramatic looks of when she doesn't get her fancy feet. I mean, it's amazing the range. Once you get attuned to an animal, they're extraordinary range of bounds. They're the same as us because the brain structure is the same. The emotional aspect is, is the same. The same chemicals work on them. The same, if you, if you cut the brain and stain it, stains the same. Um, 
it's the same. What's not the same is all the huge um, cerebral abilities. Right. And so we have, um, that's the difference. And that I, somehow that seems to, I don't know what that has to do with the sadism. I'd rather not get into that too much. I'd rather talk about things that are really useful to people. Well, I think this is important because it's very important that when we go across, when you and I talk about the extraordinary range of animal abilities, the extraordinary opportunity that animal relationships open up, we need to be able to have arguments to counter the kind of dark voices that I heard from these analysts. We need to be able to say, this isn't true. This is the definitions that we work with. This is what we've observed. It's very important because otherwise... This new relationship that you and I, which is an ancient relationship that we're trying to yeah. experience ourselves and revive in the human race, that will be aborted like so many other things are being aborted by cynicism or nihilism or insufficient knowledge. I don't know why they, ha why they said that, because um, I haven't read your book, but um, to say that animals can teach us to project, call that a projection, is pretty absurd. It's absurd, and it's absurd to, when you talk about the depth of psychic wisdom and the depth of passion and the depth of sacred knowledge and the depth of love and the depth of unconditional compassion, the depth of humor, all the things that we know to be true of animals. It's absurd to say that we're projecting on them. We're discovering them. It's a, re it's a revelation. So I'm discovering them. For me, it's a revelation. For you, it's, an, it's something that you've known for years. I've known it, but the, I'm exploring it. And as it opens up, I'm amazed and dazzled by the whole range of relationships that we're depriving ourselves of, simply because we can't that's imagine. That's the biggest it's tragedy. It's tragic. That's the biggest tragedy, that we're depriving ourselves of things that are so rich and so beautiful. And so wholesome and so sustaining. I've just been yes. talking to the most amazing woman who runs the biggest NGO that deals with animals in Australia and is doing heroic work. And she said, you know, everybody's talking about mindfulness, but there are all kinds of studies that prove perfectly well that a relationship with an animal can calm you down, give you extraordinary poise and focus. They've proved it. I mean, scientists need all these proofs. And why don't they talk about that? Why don't they say, look, it's very important to meditate, but why not sit with your arms around your pet and breathe with your pet, your animal companion? So let's slow down a minute. Yeah. Settle down a bit. Um, what's the name of that woman? Her name is Lynn White. She's okay. Animals Australia. She's a magnificent person. So the, I would fully agree with it. One of the part, one of the things that I'm constantly trying to do is broaden people's awareness out of our human focus and centeredness and the mindfulness wonderful as it is unless you really do it within mind mindfulness for all life we're in ourselves right and she's right mindfulness alone is not enough if we're not tuned to all life so that as i'm speaking to you andrew to the extent i'm capable of it um i'm somewhere i'm deep in me I am also tuned to all life. Yes. So one of the reasons that I, I'm good at what I do, to the extent that people tell me I'm good at what I do, is that I'm, I'm on a, a line of truth of some sort. Yes, that, you are. And that line of truth is based on, not me, but on me being connected, which is every one of us has the same capability. Yes. With me being connected to all life. So all of my decisions 
naturally in terms of considering decency, kindness, compassion, all life, because I'm thinking larger. And I don't mean to be saying I'm special in any way. It's only a gift that was given to me. No, you're not saying that. This is your charism. This is what you're evolving on all of our behalves. And it's what I want to share with other people. If you do that, if you, so there's a tree out there that's waving in the late sunlight. It's enjoying the hell out of the sun and the breeze and the birds <laughs> that are decorating it. And if I spend time with that tree, there'll be a, begin to be a connection back and forth. And there's a, that connection everywhere available to all of us. And it's easier with animals because they're much closer to us. So the connection can be stronger and faster and clearer and less diffuse. So it helps us more. But it's the same thing. If we are tuned to that connection, suddenly we're nourished, not by being mindful to ourselves. And I, I love Buddhism and I love meditating, but it's not as good as sitting in nature. Nature's bigger than us. Unless you'd meditate into nature somehow. I've, I've not been able to do that well enough, I suppose, in a meditation session. I can only do it when I'm out there in nature. But the support it gives us, that's the true tragedy. There's this incredible beauty out there for us. Connection, nurturance, everything is out there. It's almost like um, everything's waiting for us to connect to it. Say, so wait, why? When I talked to my partner, Jean, he said this, the biggest confusion, and Linda Bender said this too, the biggest confusion is all this other life is saying, why aren't they connecting? What's wrong with them? That words, you know? And that's the tragedy. Yes. And there's the beauty, if we could do it. So I, I'm gonna go to my grave and beyond doing this, you know, because it's so sad and so beautiful what could be. And the unhappiness and the lostness we have is all unnecessary. It's all there for us if we could see it. And there go, we crazy brains, you know? Somehow we went weird. <laughs> and we have to help ourselves go back into sanity. Yeah, it's too small a word for what we become. We become, uh, we're in danger of becoming psychotic. And that's what's terribly frightening. And it may be that in our relationship with animals and with nature, we have our last chance to really sane up, humble up, open up. Yeah, I suppose in some ways you could say psychotic. Oh, yes. Oh. We're not thinking about the consequences of no. what we're doing. We're not doing things that give us satisfaction and, and health and happiness. We're miserable, we're suicidal, we're, and matricidal. We're killing our home, we're killing everything. And we're creating a miserable, dreadful world for the majority of people. I mean, that's psychotic. But with that, not to go there. I would love to ask you another question, because this is really another question that I'm think, thinking deeply about. How do you identify your own animal body? I feel I have several bodies within my body. I have a spiritual body, which I know to be of light. I have a physical, just this physical body, which has its own demands. I have an emotional body which is very subtle and filled with sensitivity, but also very shy and very easily wounded and traumatized. And I'm beginning to understand that I also have an animal body within my physical body. And this animal body has definite intensities and passions and clarities and wisdom that I'm trying to access. 
Mm. And this has been increasingly deep work over these last 10 years to come to relate to these different bodies and to respect them all on an equal footing within the space of the divine self. So you have the self, the fourth, if you like, the high self, which is spacious awareness. And that is meant to be the mother that attunes all of these bodies and helps all of these bodies live together and respects all of these bodies and nurtures all of these bodies. This is a very difficult act, as you know. But what I would love to know from you is how, what is your, do you believe in the animal body? Is, do you have an animal body? Does everyone have an animal body? What is the animal body? How do you relate to your animal body? How does your animal body express itself? <laughs> How could you possibly not have an animal well, body? Well, of course not, but I'm, I'm asking you this a kind of ridiculous question, but very few people you know would really admit to having an animal body. We're animals, but we don't, and we don't, it's true we don't acknowledge it, but when you... <coughs> I'll go a little deeper in a minute, but when you think about it, pretty much everything that drives us is the same thing that drives animals because that's how they and we are wired. It's sex, it's food, it's territoriality, it's self-esteem. Now, is there anything in human culture other than art that you um, um, is driven by that? Music, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, art and intel everything we do, the finest restaurants, the uh, falling in love, um, uh, wars, uh, being jealous of your partner, any of it <laughs> is, the same. Yes. is the same. Yes. Because we're what, we are animals and almost everything we do in almost all our culture is built on the same fundamental urges that we have in common with animals. We just elaborate on it enormously, like fine cuisine rather than, than eating a rabbit. But it's the same thing. We're driven, by, we're driven by these things. How could we not have an animal body? Then, ideally, we moderate it, but it's the same fundamental thing. So on that level, of course we're animals. I mean, do you not go to the bathroom? Do you not get thirsty? Do you not get sleepy? I myself, but I mean, I know that people do, yes. <laughs> of course, yes. So, um, but how you relate to it, ideally, is with utter joy. I hear, I do. I love the animality of myself. I, 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 I've never had, a, the, I read these texts sometimes about how appalling it is that we go to the bathroom and it shows that we're just made out of feces. I think, what if these people are sick? It's natural. This is all natural. What are we getting in such a twist about? Haven't you read texts that just make your head spin with the ridiculousness of them, which are accepted as holy writ? No, and you I think, them. God, how did they damn the animal body? They demonize the animal body. They put the animal body down and therefore deprive us of that joyful, spontaneous... Andrew, but I don't read those books. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm a religious scholar, so I've had to wade through infinite varieties of that kind of lunacy, yeah? And I understand. Yeah. Yeah. But I hear you, no, I wish I didn't have to read it, but it's actually been very informative because it's part of the reason why we're in the kind of chaotic dissociative state we are, is that we have that relationship. So, yes, I, I understand that that's true in religion. Mm. And that's one of the reasons we've gone astray, but I'm not about to read all that stuff. Oh God, you don't need to, you're living it. No. It is a book by, called The Soul of the Octopus. I love that book. What an extraordinary book. Or um, The Multitudes Among Us, which goes back to your 
your um, comment about the body, that like 90% of us is not us. It's made of other of fungi and bacteria and all kinds of um, other beings. And every single cell in our body was originally an independent entity. Right. And it's and even the energy, the mitochondria in every one of our cells is actually an alien entity, if you will, that entered in and became an energy factor, factory for us. But it's not us. It's so, and yet it is because we're this gorgeous, vibrating, interconnected, uh, communicating, uh, coordinated single entity that we're a community, we're a living community. And we have the wisdom of every single cell and the wisdom of how the cells come together into every organ and every organ has its own wisdom. And this goes back to the animal thing in a way, you know, and all those wisdoms come together into one unit that is actually held together by our brilliant brains. If we're not going crazy with them and everything goes well, then we can tune into all of that stuff. Not just the incredible life force that's flowing through us, but all the incredible coordination and the brilliance of it all. And it's all there vibrating in there for us. If you sit and meditate and feel the aliveness of yourself, that's all the animal body. There is no sensuality or sensual experience without the animal body. Right. The joy comes from the animal body other than, right. again, you know, the art and music, which that's a... So well, of course, there are, there, are, there are transcendent joys too. There are mystical joys, but the deepest joy of life comes from the animal body. Yes. Why do you think we've had such an ambiguous, bizarre relationship with the animal body? Does it come from our past as fighting with animals in our past to, for our own territory, no. developing alongside animals and being attacked by animals? Do we have no. memories of sort no, 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 of them, but of us in our past? What is the no, there, there's this? quite a few um, historical and still some present um, cultures that do not have that relationship. So when you say us, you have to distinguish. Yes, the West. Um, are there cultures that don't have that kind of antagonistic yes. relationship? Yeah, well, the Aborigines certainly didn't. And the, it seems that many of the indigenous cultures have a deeply respectful well, relationship say, with animals. You can't say people. It's not true. There are strains of us people who are, where, where there's more sanity. Right. Cultures that are more sane than others. Right. right. And all, um, most of the religions have all the stuff that you've been reading. Right. Which is a form of insanity. Yes. And how it started, I don't know. I often wonder about how cultures begin. It might begin like if you, like you have families who are crazy and you have families who are sane and you have families who are somewhere in between. And it, it goes from generation to generation, but it's almost like, you know, any kind of tradition, maybe you start the tradition of um, sacred gardening. Another culture starts, um, had a bad experience with his mother, so starts hating women. It's, I don't know how it begins. This is not good examples at all. But cultures begin by people seeing things the way they see them, how they cook spaghetti. Um, or This is such an endemic problem. I, it can't just be that. There must be something that happened in our history that gave us a deep fear of our own animal body and the animals around us that led us to treat them with such savagery because That's the savagery. not true of all of us. The Sherpas that I lived with, 
No, not to all of us. I hear you. No, no. I mean, and I've lived with in indigenous cultures. It's a very tender. Yes, we can't. If we don't understand that it's not all of us, it misleads us in our thinking. Because then, if you think it's all humans, it's innate in all humans. Right. Quite a different thing if some humans aren't like that. Right. It means that we can have a chance to restore an original relationship or, or a very ripe and tender relationship. So the Sherpa relation culture I lived with for a little while. Um, an anthropologist invited me to go up there. They lived up at 12 and 14,000 feet. They'd been sealed off from much of um, other cultures for a while because of where they lived. Was this in Nepal? Uh, it was on the border of Tibet. In Nepal. Yes, yes. And they considered it a sin to make a child cry. Wow. They considered sex as something of joy. And if a woman screwed around with another man, big deal. But they were highly religious. They kept the best forest in Nepal because they um, wouldn't let anyone cut green wood. But the most important thing is that they considered all animals sacred. They wouldn't eat any meat unless the animal died naturally. They wouldn't even keep chickens because chickens pecked in the ground to kill insects. Uh, they had tremendous respect for life. So how can you say it's us humans because they belong to us, but they developed differently somehow. So it's, I don't agree at all that it's innate in us. Ah, yes. To, this, to, it's, to, culturally, it's culturally conditioned. Yes. And it's conditioned by also a very dissociated spirituality that puts God in some endlessly absent light and demeans the creation. So that when that happens, we become dissociated from the creation and then from that all kinds of cruelty can flow. The other thing I think that happened um, is I think we, most of us have been terribly traumatized through generations. The war and rape and, and all kinds of things that we've done to one another. So that trauma carries through and then we can be vicious or, or um, crazy. Uh, so I think another element is the trauma that we've not healed from, from multi-generations. Um, and that itself creates dissociation, which yes. one of the effects of that is cruelty of the animal. Hatred and viciousness, etc. Yes. So we have to overcome the trauma and the consequences of that. And yes, it absolutely creates dissociation and ab ability to abuse another being. Yes. So many serial killers, as we know, start by abusing animals. It's a sign, which is one of the reasons why yeah. what's happening on the earth at this moment is so scary. Because as anybody knows, if we're doing this to the animals, it's not far off when we'll be doing this on a massive scale for other human beings. And we've already done it in the 20th century in ways that are really terrifying to contemplate. So I think trauma is another factor. Another factor is um, our, our bears are lovely. <laughs> I have a friend who had a bear and I know her. I know she loved the animal. I know she's good to them. And you looked in those bears eyes and that bear was crazy. Yeah. And that bear was crazy all on its own. It wasn't because it had been traumatized, it was just wired off. Mm. And I think there are also people that are wired off. And sometimes, unfortunately, they have charisma. And I think a whole culture can get started that way too. Yes. So there are multiple factors, but I think it's dangerous to say us humans are all the same. Oh, I agree. I, 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 I really am grateful for your distinction because that's what I myself feel because I have experienced in indigenous cultures in Australia and South America 
them a completely different relationship to animals, which was very much like the one that I was discovering in my own inmost life with my own cats. And yeah, we can't say we, but we can't say it might be endemic in a lot of the religious traditions. It is. So you're, is you're imbued with that, and thank God I am not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you've escaped that one. Yes. Do you have a, a, a power animal yourself? Is there a particular animal that comes in your dreams or speaks to you? Have you had those numinous encounters at that level with animals? If you want to talk, if you don't want to talk about it, I completely understand, but it would be a great help to me if you would. Um, it's not that I'm reluctant to talk about it, it's that I'm not sure I'm aware of them. That's how I feel. I, I, I feel I've had so many encounters in dreams with animals. I don't have one particular animal. I have a very deep passion for the white lions and I have a very deep connection to dolphins. And they come in my dreams, both of them. I've never been spoken to, as some people have, and I haven't been taken on the back of an animal up to the stars or anything like that. It's just whenever I know they're there, I know I need to attend to a new level of attunement. And it always happens that that comes in the form of an incident or an <coughs> event or an opportunity that I have to take. I can only say I have an affinity for, well, any animal, anything in nature for that matter. But um, I have an affinity for wolves and I have an affinity for great blue herons. I, will, I really love birds. Yes, me too. But the first animal I felt totally head over heels in love with was a cat. So I don't know, Andrew, it's hopeless. <laughs> hopeless. Well, you, you, this, they can't send you any one fire animals because you've got the whole of nature under your wild and wonderful arms. <laughs> what was the cat that opened your heart? How did you get completely transformed by that relationship? What happened to you? So I, I always loved all animals. I didn't have a special relationship with cats at all. To some degree, I thought they were a little bit distant and I was living on a farm. That's not true, you know that, that is a fiction. I know that. True. It's not true. No, God no, cats are the most passionate creatures, that's why they go away, because they're so boiling with passion, yeah? I didn't have much experience with them. Right, no, no, I just wanted then, to be sure because of being such a cat maniac. <laughs> and then someone threw a, a kitten out of a car, probably, on a highway where I was living on a farm in Kentucky, and the scraggly little ugly gray white thing came up the driveway and I don't care what it is if it's an animal I'm going to take care of it. It came walking up the driveway and I took took it in and, and fed it and I, I have to go back to my nose but something like a few hours later I was lying on my back and this little kitten was on my, my chest purring and I just fell completely hopelessly gone in love and I was gone in love as long as that animal lived. And I've never loved anything as deeply in my whole life before. My parents, my ex-husband, no one. I love that animal beyond all measure and I have not a clue what happened or why. So, there was a kitty. He actually took from this rather little scraggly thing, he turned into this magnificent gray and white cat with golden eyes. It must have been half Persian. He was just stunning. And what was his name? We called him Minnesota Fats, which turned into Fatsky, because he stalked like he owned the universe. He just was like a, one of those great blues singer who strode around the stage with playing. 
And Minnesota fats, what a fabulous name. And when he died, he died way too early out of a strange disease that apparently was in the soil in Kentucky. Um, there's nothing to be done about it. He died of congestive heart failure at two, age two or three. And, and to some small degree, I never, I've never recovered because to have loved so profoundly and deeply and unreservedly in a way that I had no, no control over and then lose it so, so suddenly, I was just, I was hysterical. I've never been hysterical before or since, but I was hysterical with, I can't, I can't take it if he's going to die. And then when he died, the grief was just overwhelming. And this is like 40 years ago. And if I really think about it, the tears, I can feel the loss still. So the profundity of the love, I can't explain, except there it was. I feel exactly the same way about the two relationships with cats that I've had at that level. One with Furball, my first cat, and then was a sage and a miracle worker. And then Topaz, this golden tabby that I lived with in Arkansas. And I don't think I shall ever recover from his death. Even to think of it is to weep because he, I loved him with my complete being and he loved me with his complete being. And yeah. I never experienced, I didn't know that such love was possible on the earth. I just didn't. It was a complete and absolute revelation. And I don't know what he did to me. I don't know how it happened. I don't really understand any of it except that it was. I don't know, but thank God we don't have to understand. It's oh, you asked me, so I have no idea what happened to it. The, the consequence of it is that he opened me. Yeah. It's a miracle, isn't it? And having experienced that miracle oneself, that miracle of a complete love of heart, mind, soul, and body in perfect radiant equilibrium, because that's what's so extraordinary, that they love you with their whole mind, their whole heart, their whole body, and their whole being, and they invite you into a love that is as exposed, vulnerable, joyful, and complete as that. It changed my life. It gave me a completely new definition of what love really is. If you want to go back and talk to those darn psych psychotherapists, <laughs> yes. what, what that cat did... Well, God bless them. I mean, they're really trying to get some kind of understanding of this, but I was very disturbed by it, I have to say, because I, I knew you would help me with it. So... Um, what that cat did for me is no different than what many animals have done for many people, but he opened me. And that is a profound wisdom. Oh, God. Profound teaching. So I'm saying you can give that back to these guys. There, there's a story of a scientist who would go and do terrible things to dogs in the lab for science, and because they're just subjective things to experiment on. And then he'd go home and talked about how much his dog loved him. There's this incredible split that we, that we do, you know? And I don't know about these guys that you, you talk to, but if you don't consider taking a wounded person and helping them open to love, a healing and a wisdom, then what the hell are you doing in psychology? Isn't that what psychology is supposed to be doing too? Absolutely. I suppose we're doing No, I, I hear you. I think what they, I think to do them justice, what they were saying was don't, your case for all of this will be stronger if you warn people against the dangers of rejection, which is true. And your case will be stronger too if you admit certain levels of violence in the animal kingdom, even sometimes potentially sadism, cruelty, don't, don't smooth away those because that's part of the animal nature. That's true. And that's important. But there was also this 
weird, haughty dismissal of the intensity and beauty of the bond, which is part of the problem that we're facing. The mind gets so intelligent that it becomes stupid. Or it's scared. The realities of life. Hmm? Or it's scared. Scared. Well, I think there is something scary about the naked love of an animal. I've noticed it sometimes at the beginning in my own relationship with the cats. I thought, my God, it's scary to be loved so much because, of course, you have to turn up in that relationship. You have to be responsible to that relationship. And you also, at least I did initially, I felt maybe I, I'm not able to love like that with such sincerity and passion. But then I discovered that through their grace and through Hutzpah, I was able to do that. But there's a fear at the beginning, a fear of that level of intimacy, that level of exposure. And it means connecting with something in us that can be very scary. And what's that? The vulnerability of being deeply alive. Because then we can lose it. And, and that, that's part of it. And the other is that most of us have been raised in families that don't want that. Generation after generation after generation. My own family did not want the reason I had trouble in it, among other things, is because I was innately so alive and they didn't want it. It was scary to them. They kept trying to, and it wasn't them. It was them and, and the culture they came from and then, the, you know, uh, the generations and generations. So they weren't trying to do it to me out of any cruelty or anything, but to become fully alive, among other things, then you become a revolutionary, you become radical. You're not controllable anymore. And most cultures don't, can't tolerate that. You have to be made to fit. And so very early on, we're taught that it's very scary to be alive. If you're alive, that somehow they're going to psychically kill you. And they do often kill you. And they kill intellectuals and other people all through history. So it's very, very scary to be fully alive because you might be killed psychically. You might be mocked and ridiculed. You might be killed physically. And to come alive like that, that's one element. Another area is, is the terror of if you're fully alive, then you the amount of, of loss if you if you die or you lose the animal can feel like it's unbearable. I think that that's really one of the deepest subtle um, blocks because you as soon realize that how precious this love is and that and there's a terror always. You open yourself to pain. Yes. So well, there's that wonderful phrase of St. Francis when he says, um, love suffers like a bird sings. You have to accept that suffering if you want to live in love. You can't deny it. You have to become strong enough to bear it, don't you? And it's not easy. It's never easy. It gets harder in my experience, actually, because the wonderful thing about growing older is that you do love more. Yes. Helplessly, you love more and more and more as you go towards death. It seems the heart just keeps opening. Yes. To embrace more and more beings and more and more love for all kinds of crazy people and all animals and all of nature. And, but it's so wonderful to talk to you about these things and wonderful to share this sacred conversation with the heart. I love, I love you. And it's my birthday tomorrow. I'm going to be 66. So one of my birthday wishes, dear Susan, is that you write your book this year and that everything you need for your amazing work is given to you and that your work in your institute in Idaho is fueled by lashings of generously donated cash <laughs> that keep flowing. That I really do wish that. I've 
stop wishing for myself. I've got everything I could conceivably need. But I really decided in all my birthdays, I'm going to wish for my close friends. So that's what I wish for you. I really do. Thank you for the amazing work you do and for being you, most of all, for being such a living example of the humble, wild relationship that happens when you wake up to who animals are and what nature is. Oh, I think I'm barely scratching the surface. Well, you know you are, that, but that's, it's an endless journey, isn't it? Thank God, it's always yes. unfolding. Thank God, there will yes. always be more. I think that's what the angels know. Somebody once said to me that the angels are wiser than us because they know that in every moment they can die even deeper into God. And that's what they're busy doing, dying into radiance so that they can burn more brightly. And I suppose that's, I know actually that's the meaning of our life. We're meant to die every moment deeper into life so that life can possess us and radiate through us more and more and sweetly and intensely and focusedly. And you're doing that. As best I can. As best I can. Yeah. Shall we end with a prayer for, for all the animals on the planet? Yes. And would you do it? Would you give it? The animals are calling us to hear not just their suffering, but to hear the beauty that's available if we connect. The prayer is that we find one another and love and support and live in ecstatic relationship with one another because that's what's possible, to enrich one another so that we all begin to glow in the beauty of the interaction, and may that happen for all of us. May it be so. This is Dr. Susan Eyrick for Earthfire Radio, a production of Earthfire Institute. If you would like to help with our mission to change how people see and therefore treat wildlife and nature, please make a donation at our website, www.earthfireinstitute.org. The soundscapes are by Wild Sanctuary Presents, Bernie Krauss and Philip Auberg. Thank you for listening. <laughs>